Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Should we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Scripture. We want to thank you, Lord, for the way it challenges us. And Lord, we pray that we may hear that challenge today with fresh ears and open hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the last couple of sermons uh, where we've looked at parables, uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I found them really challenging. Anyone else found them a bit challenging? Oh, good, some hands in the air. Because uh, they are. I mean, the thing about parables is that most of us have read them, we've kind of thought about them, we've heard them maybe at Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, uh, and they kind of pick up a, uh, a kind of sugar coating. They're kind of palatable, uh, but they're not. They, they were hard-hitting stories. And I hope that over the last couple of weeks that you've realised that um, and hear the challenge in that. Uh, and sadly, this story is no different. This is a hard-hitting story. Uh, it's a story that has lots of different layers. Some of the parables are very simple and have one point. Uh, this parable has lots of different layers and it's almost like every detail means something. Uh, it's a deeply profound parable uh, so uh, we're going to look at it in a minute and this parable gives us uh, two stark choices and that's what we're going to think about today the problem for me is that when I look at this parable um, it reminds me of a bit of a trauma I had uh, I, not long after I became a Christian when I was 21 our church had a, a church drama group that did um, sketches and things for church services. Uh, and uh, we were actually quite good, even if I say so myself. Um, we, we actually travelled all over the Northwest doing different events and churches, doing drama for special services and all those kind of things. Uh, and uh, one evening we were doing uh, a, a gig, if I can say that. We were at the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. That's a bundle of laps, indeed, yeah. It was uh, the annual service. It was at uh, St. Mary's Upton. Uh, and uh, the leader of our group, uh, who's actually a lawyer, <laughs> uh, decided that we were going to do this parable. We were going to perform this in some way. And part of the performance was that as the reading was being read from the front, uh, Lazarus would crawl down the aisle of the church. Uh, and they chose me as Lazarus. I was made up, you know, starring role, you know, that's good. Um, and I, I, we rehearsed it, the, the whole thing it was going to be great, we were excited about it, we knew exactly how we were going to do it, uh, and it comes tonight, and I'm stood at the back of the church, ready to crawl down and surprise people when they see this beggar walking down the aisle, and I suddenly had a bit of a fright, because I realised that I was stood there with nothing on, apart from a little loincloth. And there was about four or five hundred lawyers there with their wives and their husbands. I suddenly thought, oh, I didn't think about this, did I? You know, so there's me crawling down the aisle, half naked, covered in dirt. Uh, and it's one of those memories that is kind of etched in my mind. And, and to be honest, slightly traumatic. And I kind of just want to do that. You know? um, anyway, that's, that's my problem. Uh, so I, I just want to share that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's good to just share your problems in, in, with a couple hundred people, you know, it's great. Um, what does this parable do? Well, there's two parts to it. Uh, 
One of the first things this parable sets out is the, the dangers of wealth. The first person we read in the story is the rich man. And Jesus goes into quite detail about the rich man. It's, uh, Jesus says he, he clothed himself in purple robes. Purple robes were the most expensive robes. Purple dye was the hardest dye to get hold of. So anything that was dyed in purple was very, very expensive. Uh, and so he, he wore purple robes. Uh, says he had fine linen. Uh, that is basically underwear. He had the best underwear. How people knew he had the best underwear, I don't know. Maybe he hung Armani shorts outside on his uh, washing line or something. Who knows? But he had the best possible clothes. Uh, the NIV reading says he lived in luxury. The Greek says basically he feasted sumptuously. He had the best food. And he did this every day. Most people wear their purple robes on special occasions, not him. Most people have feasts on special occasions, but no, not him. This was a guy who wanted to parade his wealth so that everyone could see. Here was a guy who lived out his life to simply display just how rich he was. Either to put himself above other people or to gain respect, we don't know. But here is a guy who was living a life that everyone else has dreamt of. It's a difficult kind of picture because the question is, who's this person today? Who is the rich man? And we could all look at that and think, that's someone else. We could point around uh, people even in this town who are really wealthy and say, wow, that, that, that's him. The problem with that is that globally, we, all of us here, without exception, are probably in the top 5% of the richest people in the world. Each and every one of us. And we might not parade around in the best clothes every single day, and we might not eat a feast every single day. But in terms of global wealth, you are rich. And the danger with a story like this is that we want to look at other people and point the finger and say, That's, this is for them. It's not, it's for all of us. The bad picture that Jesus paints this guy is here's a guy who is completely self-absorbed. Here's a guy who just wanted to live out a life that was about him. See, John Wesley pointed this out. He said that wealth has a danger of changing people's priorities and relationships. People who are wealthy tend to view themselves as self-reliant and independent, not needing God. They become hard-hearted. They become hard-hearted to other people who are less fortunate to themselves. They forget in their thinking that they are self-made people. That all wealth given is an act of grace from God. I'm just going to share another confession now. But this is not about me. Uh, this is about Andrea. Uh, Andrea has a guilty secret. 
Does anyone watch The Real Housewives of Cheshire? No? Okay. Uh, (laughs) Andrew loves it, okay? Uh, It is the worst. And I know that probably there's more than what Andrew here watches it. It's just that you guys are just sensible enough not to put your hands up in the air. Uh, It is the worst possible programme you could ever imagine. It's about a whole bunch of wealthy women. And they are not pleasant at all. There is not one redeeming factor about them. And now it's, it's, it's meant to be reality TV, but it's mostly kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's not reality at all. But they are portrayed, or they portray themselves as basically really horrible people. There's nothing likeable about any of them. And there is not one instance, because I, I sometimes have to watch this... <laughs> I come in from a, a hard day's work and a meeting in the evening and I have to sit down in the living room and Andrew's watching this rubbish. Uh, and I, I have to watch it. But they have never, ever once thought about how lucky they are to have what they have. I do know that. At least on, at least on the TV. Don't you dare try and uh, protect them. But wealth has has this danger. It makes us less than what we should be. It makes us hard-hearted. It makes us view other people differently. And you can hear that perhaps even in some of the politics of, of today, where rich and most politicians are pretty wealthy, and certainly wealthier than most of us. View those less fortunate with derision. And this rich man's like that. He's portrayed like that. He's portrayed as someone who didn't care about this poor man, Lazarus, who was at his gate every single day. While he feasted, this guy starved. This rich man is not portrayed well at all. And of course, Jesus says, doesn't he, how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's something about wealth that that damages our soul. That damages how we view ourselves. And we each, each one of us, need to constantly check ourselves on that. Because, like it or not, you're all wealthy. I mean, anyone who has been to uh, some of the poorest places in the world, you will realise just how wealthy you are. Andrew and I went to Haiti a year after the earthquake. And you're talking to people who've li- who are still now, 10 years later, probably it's about 10 years, I think, still living in tents, in slums, with no sanitation, with no food, with no hope for a future. We went to Uganda and we met one of our sponsored children, uh, Benita. Uh, And even now when I talk about it, I still choke up. As I think about the poverty that young girl lives in. We are rich and we can't point the finger at the housewives of Cheshire and say, look at them. It could be all of us. (coughs) We all have a danger of becoming hard-hearted. And then Jesus creates a huge contrast for the rich man and then Lazarus. It says that Lazarus was laid 
at the rich man's gate. In other words, he had to be carried there. He had friends, family or neighbours who carried him to the rich man's gate in the hope that the, the only person perhaps in the village who could help would help this poor, sick man. And yes, of course, the rich man never does. This man, Lazarus, had no ability to provide or care for himself. He relied on others. Whereas the rich man was self-reliant, Lazarus was the complete opposite. He relied on the goodness of others just to get from one day to the next. Perhaps even just to move around. Lazarus. Who's Lazarus? See, it would be easy to think of Lazarus as the guys that we see on the street begging. But Lazarus was really more than that. See, Lazarus was invisible. It's almost like the rich man never saw him. And there are loads of people in this town who struggle through life. Either because of poverty or other issues. You will have passed them in the streets as you walk through this town. They may be people that you know. People who you are aware of. And yet they are struggling with severe death that cripples them. They are struggling with sickness that binds them to a home or to one place. You may have passed uh, people today who are struggling with life and they are invisible. They are the isolated, the forgotten, the neglected. And there are this town is full of them. This community that this church is placed in, this parish, is the poorest parish in the town. And so as you walked here today, you'll have passed homes where there are people like Lazarus. And maybe some of them you know. People have a perception of Southport as being wealthy, but it's not. There are huge areas of real poverty in this town. So Lazarus is all around us. And it's fascinating that Lazarus is the only person in this parable who is named. In fact, the only person in any parable who is named. And do you know what his name means? The one whom God helps. The one whom God helps. Now, I guess people would have laughed at Lazarus with a name like that as he sat at the gate covered in sores, longing just for some crumbs off the rich man's table. Where is God? Where is your God? Why isn't he helping you? In fact, some of you would have been in that very position where you've gone through stuff in your life and are maybe going through stuff in your life now and you're thinking, where is God? You may have looked at the TV screens and seen how evil people prosper and the good are oppressed. And you think, where is God? And you know what the sad thing is? This parable doesn't answer that question. In fact, the Bible doesn't really answer that question. It leaves us with a tension, a paradox. We don't know what God is doing. But what we do know is that in this story, in the end, God does help him. See, sometimes we see life, this life that we live, is the whole of it. It's the the big thing, isn't it? It's all about what we do now in this life. And yet our life is simply a drop of sand, a little piece of sand, 
in eternity. It is just a little blip, a little moment. It might be 80 or 90 years that you live, but it is still a little moment in time. And for us as Christians, we can't get simply focused on our life now. We need to have an eternal perspective. And what we do know is that for Lazarus, at the end of his life, the guy who was carried to the gates was then carried up to heaven to be with God. Actually says that, doesn't he? Carried by the angels as an act of grace. See, this question kind of asks, sorry, this parabas of questions, isn't it? Is it simply that at the end of life, when we get to heaven or at the end after death, our roles in this life are simply reversed? Because the rich man goes to hell. The rich man ends up begging, as you read in the second half of the story. And the poor man, Lazarus, he's the one who is in heaven, in the presence of God. And there's kind of indications in, in the, the original Greek that, that say he feasted sumptuously in the same way that the rich man did. The roles are reversed. And you know what? In the time of Jesus, there were lots of stories all around the Middle East that were exactly like this. Exactly like the story that Jesus told here. Where they basically said, what happens in this life is reversed in the next If you lived well in this life, when you get to heaven, you'll be in hell. If you were poor in this life, you'll be in heaven in the next. There were loads of stories like that. Now, Jesus' story has a twist that I'll tell you about at the end. But really, this this story isn't about that. It's about attitudes and relationships. It's about how does a rich man relate to a poor man. See, just before this story... Jesus gives some teaching about money. And I said it's about the shrewd manager, and you'll hear this parable in a couple of weeks' time, and John's going to preach on it. And at the end, it says uh, that he was speaking to the Pharisees who loved money. And then Jesus says, You cannot serve two masters. You either serve God or mammon. And then he tells this story, which is interesting, isn't it? So the question is who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve yourself by seeking money? Or are you going to serve God by helping the poor? See, the one thing that you'll see all the way through Scripture, from beginning to end, is God's heart for the poor. Bishop David Shepherd, the Bishop of Liverpool, two bishops ago, Described as God's bias for the poor. God has a bias for the poor. God has a love for the poor. And a love for those who help the poor. So who are you going to serve? See the question that that kind of this brings up is. How are you living your life? Are you living your life in such a way that people can tell that you are Christians by the way you treat the poorest? By the way you treat people who are vulnerable? By the way you treat people that everyone else shuns? 
You know, I, I, I read this and I, it's, it's just a huge challenge to me. <clears throat> I, I've had to read this all week and try and struggle with it and struggle with how I, how I handle this and how I live this out. See, we are called to live life in such a way that we are completely different to everyone else. And in a world that is focused on getting money and getting wealth and looking after number one, we need to be the complete opposite. We should be the people who are able to live generously and serve the poor and do so with glad hearts, not reluctantly. We should be a people who who openly live our lives that reach out to those who are less fortunate than ourselves, whoever they may be, but particularly those who are the neglected, forgotten, invisible ones. Sonia put on Facebook uh, this morning, James 2.26, that faith without action is dead. She's laughing now, she's no she's I watch everything on Facebook. Uh, faith without action is dead. And you know what? This rich man, when he's in hell, he calls out to Abraham. He says, my father Abraham. In other words, he's saying, I'm a man of faith. I'm a man of faith. I'm one of your descendants. Why am I here in hell? But faith without action is dead. And dead faith doesn't get you to heaven. I hope you, you heard that. Dead faith does not get you to heaven. Because Jesus here is talking to Pharisees. They were the protectors of the faith. They were the people who lived, were supposedly living out their faith perfectly. And yet Jesus gives them this word. And we are people of faith. And we should be the people whose lives are so different to everyone else that people can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So how are you living your life? Is your life reflecting the heart of God for the poor? The challenge in that is that we don't just give money to great agencies like like Christian Aid or Tear Fund. That we don't just send our money somewhere. John Wesley, he was passionate about the early Methodists serving the poor in some way and giving generously. And he insisted, he insisted on them not just sending their money to the poor, but personally taking their money to the poor. So they could put a face to poverty, so they could hear stories of what those people have been through. To melt their hard hearts. Because any time you hear the stories of those who are really struggling in poverty, it will melt your hard heart. And all around this church right now are people whose stories would melt you. So don't think that simply because you have sent your money somewhere, that is a good thing. But don't think that is enough. There is something about connection. There is something about relationship here that we need to grab hold of. That we cannot serve the poor from a distance. Because that's not how Jesus did ministry. Jesus came to this earth and lived amongst us. 
And that's how we should do. By creating relationship connection and putting a face on the poverty that we hope to relieve. The second half of the story moves into a different kind of area. It's all about the reality of eternal life. And this is a massive statement of Jesus. And we might just all shrug our shoulders and say, well, of course there's eternal life. That's why we're here. But there's a huge debate in Jesus' time about whether there was eternal life. The Sadducees, they believed that people simply died. And that was it. There was no eternal life. And they were arguing with others, like the Pharisees, about whether, you know, them arguing from Scripture about what was true and what was not. It was the biggest question of the day. And Jesus, every time he spoke about life, always talked about eternal life as a fact. He affirmed eternal life, and he does so here. So as he told the story, the Sadducees, they have their heckles up thinking, what's he going on about eternal life? This is rubbish. But he also talks about the reality of judgment in this parable. That one day you will be judged. Because there's a heaven and a hell. And the rich man ends up in hell. Even though he is a person supposedly of faith. And Lazarus is in heaven. And in this passage, in this parable. What we see is justice restored. That everything that that Lazarus had hoped for. Is fulfilled in heaven. See, there is no poverty in heaven. There is no sickness in heaven. In heaven, it's described as a great feast, isn't it? And time and again, in the parables particularly, Jesus talks about how at this great feast, it is the poor and the lame and the blind who are invited to that. Not the rich and the wealthy who turn it down, who turn down the invitation. You know, the parables are hard-hitting on the wealthy. And the parables are incredibly compassionate towards the poor. See, in heaven, the least will be first, and the first will be last. And when you get to heaven, assuming you get to heaven, just throwing that one out there, Who will be closest to Jesus when you get there? It might be the people that you've walked past today. It might be the people who have been begging on the street. The people who in their homes right now are struggling and making decisions about whether they feed their kids or heat the house. Or whether they feed their kids and buy a uniform. People who are struggling every single day through life. And maybe when you get to heaven, they'll no longer be invisible to you. You'll see them face to face. And this parable unfortunately provides no answers about the injustices of this life. Except perhaps that Lazarus was the answer and he refused to be the answer. Sorry, no, not Lazarus. The rich man was the answer and refused to be the answer because he was so focused on himself. He was so focused on his own wealth and not on being generous with that wealth. And it's interesting that right at the end, this hard-hearted rich man 
is still treating Lazarus like he's the lowest of the low. He, asks, he doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He asks Abraham, tell Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and bring it to me. He's treating him like a slave. And when Abraham says no, he says, well, tell Lazarus to go and tell my brothers about what awaits them so they can change their lives. He's treating Lazarus like he is still less than him. And there's no repentance. There's no sense of, wow, I messed up. I should have treated Lazarus better. He is still, even in hell, hard-hearted. Failing to live up to the faith that he proclaims. So the final question is this. Have you made your decision now about life and death? About poverty and wealth? See, right at the end, the rich man says to Abraham, Well, look, why don't you send Lazarus to tell my brothers about what's happening? And Abraham says, well, they've got Moses and they've got the prophets. They should know all that they need to know about salvation and about life. And then he says, well, if they see someone from the dead come back, then that will change their mind. And of course, Abraham says, no, that won't change their mind at all. And of course, when Jesus died and rose again, there wasn't some great big flood of people all coming to faith. It was hard. It was slow. It took 300 years for Christianity to become the, the, the faith that everyone believed in. So even though Jesus rose from the dead, only a few believed. And it took 300 years of them proclaiming and sharing and living out their faith for the Christian faith to be regarded as the, the, the national faith. See, even resurrection, even miracles cannot change the hard-heartedness of some people. Most of you know that I became a Christian when I was 21 uh, because a friend of mine had her knees dramatically and radically healed. You know, she went from hobbling around on two walking sticks to running around and dancing. In an instant. Yeah, that's how it was. I was the only one who came to faith because of that. You would think, wouldn't you? Everyone would be like, wow, God must be alive. See, for those who are hard-hearted, they already have all that they need to know. A miracle is not going to necessarily change their mind. It might do. It did for me, but not necessarily. It's interesting, isn't it, that as Great Britain got richer in the early part of the last century, church attendance declined. See, in the end, hard-heartedness is really hard to break through. It needs something to change a person on the inside before they can even, perhaps, reach out to God. If you've been brought up to be self-reliant, to be a self-made person, to be independent, to submit your life to God is a huge act that people find difficult.
See, there is no second chance once you're dead. At that point, you are judged. And if you're not a Christian today, I would encourage you to not hold back any longer, but to give your life to Jesus to make that decision. But for each and every one of us, there's still a decision to make. How will you live your life? Will you still, even as a person of faith, live your life serving mammon, serving money, serving yourself? Or will you live your life serving God and serving the poor? That's the challenge for each and every one of us. Because otherwise your faith might be dead. And a dead faith gets you nowhere. And so as I think about my life, and think about, effectively, even as a vicar, but not well paid, how wealthy I am, how I enjoy my life, how I enjoy some of the good things of life, as I read this parable, I am challenged to think about how am I connecting with the poorest? How am I connecting with those who need my help? Not from a distance, but face to face. And I want to encourage you to think the same around that. To think about how can you connect with those that you walk past, perhaps in your street. And how can you put a face, a kind of face of faith to them. So they can see Jesus in you. So they can see something what faith means in today's life. I want to encourage you to read this parable again during the week. To not walk away from it because it's too challenging. But to look at this parable and reflect on it and think about your attitude. And to think about how you might live out faith in Jesus each and every day. True Pistamphilus. We're going to worship, but uh, as usual, there'll be people over here who will pray for you for whatever it is you need prayer for. And it might be that today you're just aware of a sense of hard-heartedness. That you, as you look at those poorer than you, you think of yourself better than them. And that is not, it's not nice, but we all do that. I do it. That's because my heart is not always as soft as it should be. So I want to encourage you, why not just get prayer? Ask the Holy Spirit of God to soften your heart towards others so that you may truly live out your life properly by serving them and serving Him. Or it might be that today you've come here with all sorts of other things going on in your heart and mind that you just need God to be healing, restoring, renewing. In that place, perhaps you're the Lazarus. Because we need to be like Lazarus. Someone in need of grace and healing. Allow someone to pray with you today. Allow someone to speak God's words into your life. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this passage. We want to thank you, Lord, for the way that you challenge us 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out our faith in ways that truly glorify you. That people may see our good works and glorify you in heaven. Lord, forgive us when we are hard-hearted towards others. Forgive us, Lord, when we walk past people in need in our street, maybe even family members, Lord, without offering our help, our support. Lord, I pray that we may be the face of Jesus to those people. And Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen.